0: Alright, guys, this week we're going to talk about a career and a life lived right here in Idaho. There exists a threat, from anti hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, We provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this week's episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Tan Studio right here in Clark Fork, Idaho. Uh, I have got a return guest for this week. In fact, it is a um, he's an audience favorite from way back when the the podcast first started a few years ago. So uh, welcome, Director Ed Schriever. How you doing? Good,
1: Jim. Thanks for having me
0: back. Did you did you know that uh, you were I don't know like one of the first ten guests I had on on this show back when we started well,
1: I, out? I, I didn't know what number it was, and it was kind of early in your game. But uh, you know, you gotta you gotta give the shout out to the Idaho guy, to the hometown guy who's uh, breaking into the market. So that, that was a fun interview uh, four years ago.
0: That was, that was a fun, uh, uh, I remember, uh, you gave my dog a hard time for being chubby and I wanted to give you an update that he still doesn't miss a meal and he's still pretty chubby.
1: Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> we'll <make> good points.
0: <laughs> so the, we decided to do this or I, I asked you to, to come on and do this because, uh, you are on the verge of retiring as director from Idaho Fish and Game and, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to kind of walk through what your career's been like. And, and, uh, I, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I'm not sure. Um, I'm super excited about you retiring, man.
1: Um, yeah. well, I appreciate that. And, uh, 39 years, is a long time, uh, a year in the role of director, uh, is like living in dog years. So uh, yeah. <laughs> every year in this job is like four or five or seven uh, regular years. Uh, it you know it's been, it's a fun fun job. I, I I quote that phrase all the time. You do what you love and you won't work a day in your life, and it doesn't really feel like it's been work because I'm uh, you know my personal values are so aligned with the mission of the agency and all, all of that stuff but mm-hmm. the, this this job does suck the wind out of you a little bit and, um, and just after 39 years with the agency um, I I feel like I've pretty much accomplished those things that the commission um, asked me to do when they hired me on and uh, being director is is kind of like staying with your in-laws. I think, Jim, you want to yeah. you want to leave when they wish you would still stay a little bit longer, or you don't want to leave after they wish you'd have been gone, you know, a while ago. So I think the timing's just right, and I I can feel like I'm leaving the agency in a good position, and relationship with the commission is is really good. Um, mm-hmm. There's always going to be issues. In fish and wildlife, but uh, I'm I'm feeling pretty good about the timing of my retirement.
0: When you started with the Idaho Fish and Game way back when, um, did you did you ever imagine that you would end up being the director of Idaho Fish and Game?
1: Never in a million years, uh, Jim. So great question. You know i I was I was a young inspiring guy just out of college had a young family and just felt tickled to be hired to be a fish culturist in in idaho in 1984 and had no aspiration i'd know you know i thought my dream job was going to be a fisheries biologist and i got to do that and it was dream job and then so i was a biologist and manager fisheries manager in the clearwater for Clearwater uh, region for about 19 years and man that's the cat's meow you know this uh, I just that was the job I always dreamed of as a kid um, and then just had the opportunity to kind of jump into executive leadership and, and went to headquarters and was the chief of fisheries for eight years and deputy director of operations for a couple and then this chance, you really never know what this job's like. I, I don't think anyway until you're in it. Um, but the ability to influence uh, is pretty special, and uh, I made a lot of really good friends uh, among you know the stakeholders in fish and wildlife conservation and management. And this it, been yeah. a very very cool deal for me.
0: I just can't imagine the the changes. You said 1984? Yeah. Uh, and you started up kind of in the neck of the woods where I'm living now, right? You're uh, up here in the Clark Fork with, uh, on that Cabinet Gorge Dam hatchery?
1: Yeah, that was actually my third job. So I started in Southeast, extreme Southeast Idaho uh, at the Gracefish Hatchery. And then I went to Hell's Canyon and worked actually – in oregon managing the idaho powers uh, hatchery there below oxbow dam and i was there uh almost a year and then that cabinet gorge hatchery that you're living close to now was built washington, at then washington water power now a vista built that to raise kokanee for lake Ponderay, and um i i was selected to manage that facility. It was brand brand new, had not had a fish raised in it. It was Idaho's first hatchery to be supplied 100% by electric electric motor-driven wells. And so, you know, backup generators and all of that stuff. And it was an exciting ride there for the first year or so until we got some of the bugs ironed out. But yeah that was uh those were great times
0: so back in those days how how was the uh what was winter like back back then uh in this area
1: yeah well <laughs> yeah it was cold it was and there was a lot of snow you no know, there was uh i think the second year that would have been eighty five i can't remember the year from one to another but you know, we had a snow plow on a pickup truck and, and we'd keep the road in, and then we just couldn't keep up with it and we had no place to go and actually had to hire uh had to hire a guy with a D eight to come down there and push the snow out of the way so we could keep the road open and keep plowing. So it was definitely winter.
0: Yeah, that's the problem with uh, just by virtue of how thick the the woods are up here and and how much it snows. You just always run out of uh, places to push the snow. That's always my problem. (laughs) So I'm super curious about kind of your what you've seen for, you know, over 39 years. What's been like the biggest change in wildlife management or or working for a fish and game agency uh that that has surprised you
1: well i don't know jim that because my perspective it changed so much if i would have you know been my whole career in one job i would have had this consistency to compare across 39 years but I've, yeah i've done eight eight different things so the perspective is different i think though at the at the start of my career we were just coming into a time in idaho where things like the sports practices act and and range management uh, we were coming out of an era where the fish and game department was uh in contentious relationships with the timber industry and and uh the livestock industry and any more right and so we used to really be uh struggling with water quality issues and habitat issues and that that's just not the case anymore we're more closely aligned with the timber industry. They've done some really progressive things in the timber industry in the way they build roads and the the way they manage the riparian corridor uh, on behalf of water quality and fish habitat and range management. You know, uh, the biggest risk to folks that use the range and wildlife that uses the range isn't the use of the range itself. It's the you're trying to make sure that range stays there, and it's not another subdivision. And yeah. wildlife needs the same kind of stuff that folks that utilize the range do. They need it to be contiguous, connected, open, all of those things. So I think that's probably one of the bigger things. Is we're not always fighting with those folks anymore. There's more common ground between what wildlife need and what working landscapes need uh and there's actually alliances there where there used to be contention and i think that that's a big deal
0: oh for sure i think that that is in and actually uh you kind of opened my eyes to this in, in a in a in an off way i guess you introduced me to somebody named Bill Gaines um, that I had on the show that that talked about the importance of having alliances as outdoorsmen uh, with industries such as, you know, the, the ag industry or, or the cattlemen associations or the timber industry, because they're the ones that will, will go to bat uh, against some of the, the preservation or protectionists, I, I, I should call them um in the animal activists and stuff. And so it's it's been it's been an interesting, I don't know, shift in my philosophy as to as to how to view that. Um how now how long have you been director again?
1: Uh four years. Almost four years. exactly four years.
0: What's been what would you say is like the the biggest challenge since you've been director uh that you've had to overcome?
1: Well I you know I made a comment just last night that um, the the wolf issue has really like, sucked the life out of me it, it's uh, we've made a lot of progress it was a priority when the commission hired me that we get our arms wrapped around wolf management and the commission's priority to manage for a smaller wolf population and really make some headway uh, in the areas where wolves have a demonstrated conflict with with livestock and our ungulate populations whether they're you know primarily elk but in some places moose uh as well uh and just really makes headway and uh the, you're, you know you you're no stranger to this issue jim and it is yep. contentious uh it, it's always uh Legal aspects, legislative aspects um, you know there's some folks that, that don't think you could ever have enough wolves. There are folks who could never think you had you could get few enough wolves, and then there's you know the space in between those two and um, so that ha- that has been a seminal issue for me in the last four years and the wolf depredation control board and advancement of hunting seasons and trapping seasons and making sure folks know that our intent is not to uh, exterminate wolves, but to manage them. So they are represented on the landscape and they, you know, they have the ability to be there, but not to the degree where they're, they're detrimental to the values that we have here in Idaho. And and I, you know, I took upon uh you and the use of sportsmen's dollars to build a system where we could estimate the wolf population with with some degree of accuracy. And we've just you know we just completed our fourth annual estimate of the wolf population in all of the occupied country. Uh, we just yesterday the commission just released a draft wolf management plan, the first wolf management plan since the legislature created the wolf conservation plan in 2002. And there's been a lot changed since 2002. The commission's draft plan. So if you're you need to look at that, we got a 30-day comment period on that. It's the The legislatively approved plan of 2002 said if you're above 150, which is the recovery threshold, you don't want if you go below that number, they're subject to being relisted. Mm -hmm. All that plan says is if you're above that number, you got to do everything you can do to reduce the conflicts that, that wolves have on the landscape, and so that leaves a whole lot of room open for interpretation. If you remember. Two legislative sessions ago, when the legislature passed Senate Bill 1211, which which provided additional tools uh, to the department to the commission uh, for management of wolves, and and without having a formal description of what our intent is in managing the wolf population, that got hijacked by. Media who want to sell newspapers and environmental organizations who want to, you know, raise money by well-intentioned people. That got turned into Idaho's plan to reduce 90% of the wolf population. Yeah, so,
0: I saw I saw those headlines.
1: Yeah, and, and that's not our intent. But uh, so anyway, we've got a plan on the street, which I got. I I'll just tell you, I'm really happy. To have worked this hard over the last four years to get sportsmen and the livestock industry um, legislators my commission to a place where idaho is willing to describe our intention all we've said is we want to manage for a smaller wolf population but we've never really said what that is right now our wolf population is fluctuating around 1,270, right? At the high during the year, it's about 1,600. At the low during the year, it's about 850. And the annual cycle of mortality and births, this population goes up and it goes down. All populations do that. They're not flat line.
0: Yeah, and for sure.
1: It's, and it's operating around 1,270. And the plan says our intention is to manage that population to fluctuate around 500. And actually, that is exactly consistent with what the Fish and Wildlife Service wrote in the 2009 delisting rule that Congress stood up in 2010. So Mm -hmm. I'm happy that Idaho can now tell the world this is our intention And we think if we can get here, we're going to minimize conflicts between wolves and elk. We're going to minimize conflicts between wolves and livestock. And we're going to continue to have wolves on the landscape, well-distributed and sustainable at a number that folks can live with. And by the way, that's the same number the Fish and Wildlife Service thought would be a reasonable number when they were able to plan to do this one. So
0: Man, yep. yeah.
1: I'm gl- I'm glad uh, to be able to cross that threshold during my tenure directly.
0: The uh, I, I I'm glad that we had somebody with this just the prolific nature in which wolves can reproduce and I'm just glad we had somebody that that looked at this issue and took it took it uh as serious as, as you have because 500 wolves on the land uh, on on throughout idaho I think would be an ideal number i I like having wolves on the uh, you know um I had a heck of a time this last elk season uh calling at wolves in the middle we called them in the middle of the night and they're howling back at us and it's just something about wolves that makes it more authentic being out there. But that said, twelve hundred wolves, fifteen hundred wolves—these these numbers and and these activists that that come back and and with their their hyperbole about how the Idaho Fish and Game is wanting to eliminate ninety percent of the population—it's it's such a and it's not surprising in today's day and age, I suppose. But it's such a—I don't know. It's the, yeah. the. I'm trying not to uh, go too far with that, but. <laughs> These activists. Let me ask you this. When, when as an agency, when because you started before wolves were reintroduced into the, in the state of Idaho, uh, this thing came through, uh, you know, in the United States Forest Service or, or, or I, I don't know if I'm even saying that right. What was the agency's response or feeling In 1995, when there was this uh, reintroduction of Wolves, what was your reaction? What was the agency's reaction?
1: Well, you know, I wasn't in executive leadership positions. I wasn't involved in those. those I know that. At that time, right? But um, we, I think, begrudgingly agreed to the federal government's reintroduction plan Partially and mostly because within that plan and I think well intentioned by the US Fish and Wildlife Service, most of this reintroduction that well all of it that took place south of I ninety was to be managed under this this part of the Endangered Species Act called ten J, which is an experimental non-essential population, which, by nature of Ten J, is to provide the state with considerable um, latitude to resolve conflict, and that quickly dissolved. So the and and it dissolved in the court system. So. We were moving into, here's the thing, you're going to have a lot of latitude to manage and, and resolve conflict and try to keep wolves where the conflict is low, and when they get out of those places, you're going to, you're going to be able to deal with it. And the environmentalists took that to court, and the court threw that 10J out, and all of a sudden, they've got the full protection of ESA everywhere, and you can't do anything with them for a decade.
0: Wow, I didn't know that's how that happened. Okay, and it went from something that you had
1: great hopes that you were going to have the management flexibility that the feds told you you would, and then the court took that away.
0: Interesting. I yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that. As when when we're talking about this this wolf issue, and that there's. Like you were saying earlier, you, you have these activists that are on one side that seem to not care that they're putting one species on this like pedestal uh, at the expense of everything else, whether it's another species or, or the habitat itself or livestock or, or, or whatever. It's like they're the only stakeholder in it. Um, and then you have the other spectrum where you've got these folks out there that are like, you, you know, um, you know, shoot, shovel, shut up and and no wolves and and these these are the wrong wolves they they're they're, they're not the native uh you, you know that argument the whole that side of it and then you've got the the folks that are kind of in between um I'm one of those guys that i would have, from a from a personal standpoint I'd rather them not i i suppose introduce reintroduced wolves to uh, to the state of idaho but since they're here i like i said i, I kind of like having them on the uh, out there as long as they're in check um what would you say to because you you come at it from a very scientific place uh and, and and you've got these decades of experience in wildlife management as as a scientist as a, a I, I can't remember you're a fish biologist originally correct Yes. So you've got this biologist background and and then it's kind of morphed into this thing where you're now in the position where you are the actual director of, of the Fish and Game Agency here in the state. Um what if if you were like on an airplane and you got stuck next to a wolf activist sitting next to that person and you were to try to explain to them the realities of wolf populations and and how that connects to the other species on the landscape what what would you tell that person well i don't know (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: so i've I've had conversations with all kinds of folks on, on all ends of the spectrum and some folks want to believe what they want to believe for the reasons they want to believe it and the more you talk to them the more you just convince them that they're right and everybody else is wrong um, but i would say that you know i look at this very pragmatically and and i can appreciate to a degree somebody's uh I, I would say romantic view of their concept of ecological balance and the perfect world and they were here first we you know we shouldn't foist our human values on top of wildlife and uh, that that's just not a realistic place for us to be in 2023 or 1980 we we, we occupy this landscape as well and mm-hmm. there are where it's appropriate and there are places that aren't and whether it's a wolf or a moose right you don't want them walking downtown post falls across the street so there are places that things belong and there are places that things don't belong and it's related to people and all safety and all of those things so there are some folks who might not even live anywhere close to Idaho who have a very romantic view that, you know, wolves are an important part of the ecology and elk are healthier if you have wolves that eat the sick and the weak. And but they don't really consider that mostly they just eat the young. And then they'll eat some of the sick and the weak. And by eating the young they can really limit the, the prey base population over time and, and so we had a conversation yesterday at the commission meeting about and, and when i say this these aren't absolute right i, I can't predict mm-hmm. these absolute but one only needs to look at yellowstone park which is part of the reintroduction of wolves into the northern rocky mountain distinct population segment that included yellowstone park
0: yeah and
1: yellowstone park did have an overpopulation of elk because you don't hunt in the park so there is no management of the elk herd in the park and they wanted to have fewer elk in the park because they were noticing some ecological damage of overgrazing and riparian and whatever but they weren't willing to manage them with hunting they recognized they wanted to reestablish a natural predator to establish again this view of ecological balance and harmony so uh, the wolves did that in yellowstone park they reduced the elk population the elk population could have been managed a different way, but they chose to manage it with predation by wolves.
0: Yeah. And
1: the wolf population in Yellowstone Park has undergone the highest percent reduction of wolves anywhere in the northern Rocky Mountain DPS. because. What determines the carrying capacity of wolves in many, many and most places is the availability of prey. And when they depress the prey population, guess what happens to the predator population?
0: Yeah, they suffer.
1: It also goes down. Hmm. So, every every one of these folks who have this romantic view that yellowstone is the place where where wolves are abundant and well guess what the density of wolves in yellowstone park is lower than the density of wolves some places outside of the park because there isn't the prey base to support what was there anymore and the, the concept of, well, the, just let nature take its course. Well, nature took its course in Yellowstone Park. And so you can look at it now and say there's less elk. And oh, by the way, there's also fewer wolves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's nature and that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, outside of the park in Idaho, which isn't a national park, elk have value to society in addition to being food for wolves. And Idaho is simply not willing to let the wolf population grow to however big it will grow because prey is abundant, only to have the prey go down. And subsequently, to the chagrin of everybody who thinks we'll just have thousands of wolves running around forever, the wolf population will also go down. Yeah. And so we're just not willing to go through that cycle of abundance and crash because elk are important to a lot of people. So you would, if you just let nature take its course, you'd still end up with a lower wolf population somewhere down the line. And you wouldn't have elk that are very important to people as well. So we just want to manage that balance on the front end, not wait for it to happen on the back end, because there's a loss of a lot of other values that are important to people.
0: Yeah, that it always blows my mind when you, you hear this argument a lot out of out of these wolf activists that it, they they have this. Um, well, you just want to hunt and trap wolves because you want to hunt elk. You want more elk and deer to hunt. Well, yes, but th- there's value to that. There's value to that. I-, I don't understand why you think that that's wrong. But on the, at the same time, wolves can be left unchecked and they'll they'll destroy everything. Uh, it's it's like it doesn't make. And you know what blows my mind is some of these activist groups have like these folks that are. That have PhDs and are former biologists or, or or active biologists, and and they put them up as if they've got like this higher level of credibility than somebody who is a biologist for a, for a fish and game agency. Um or, or or whatever organization uh, maybe, maybe a you know a, a conservation organization or whatever but it, interestingly that like it doesn't take away from the fact that they have this proclivity to think that wolves uh should be unchecked and and unmanaged and that there is this some fantasy about how wildlife can manage itself in the modern world full of cities highways dams reservoirs trains you know everything else that we have and it just i i don't know i don't know how like to when you when you're looking in the future i think that that like idaho is doing it right and and idaho idaho is i feel like one of the things when, when people start getting kind of which you probably know this a lot better than than me director but um if you haven't noticed some people get pretty negative about the idaho fishing game sometimes have you noticed that yeah <laughs> and so, interestingly, what, what I caution people on is, is you know, the, the Idaho Fish and Game has a sense of managing wildlife, you know, through hunting, which is what something you said when you were on the show uh, last time, is you said the, the, the management system for the Idaho Fish and Game is hunting. And and that is very different than maybe some of these other agencies that you see in some of these other states that have different priorities, because like you said, we value the elk and we value elk in a different way than maybe somebody values elk uh, in in other states that you know just has a different perspective and a different value set, and so it's important that people understand that when when you're looking at state agencies and how these things are are, are managed. Whether whether we're just talking about wolves or, or the entirety of, of all the species on the on the land, uh, that that Idaho actually does do it the right way. It's it is done through science, and and it doesn't mean that I personally agree with every move that the Idaho Fishing Game makes, uh, n- nor does it mean I disagree with them. It's just it, it is what it is, and I think that the Idaho Fishing Game does a great job. Um, and and the it's not like there's a there you guys ignore the activists but there is a sense that the Idaho fishing game has a a much higher re- read on what the reality is than the hyperbolic crap that is thrown at them from these activist groups uh where i see sometimes in in other states the the, the agencies sometimes react a little they take them too serious if that makes sense I don't know if I'm making any sense here, director. Maybe I've got cobwebs too today.
1: No, you, uh, I, I, I get where you're going, Jim, and I just, I want to back up a little bit. And, and okay, you you made a comment about um, activists and their own science, and and I'm not really going to throw an ecologist. Who studies ecology and conservation biology? I, I don't want to throw that under the bus because some of that there's a whole lot of Idaho that is wild. I mean, we've got tons of wilderness. There's no roads, right? There's no cities, mm-hmm. and and wildlife does have the opportunity to play out in the ways that it would if you know if it was ten thousand years ago. If you wanted to let that happen, it, it's very <laughs> wild country
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right yep what what this gets to jim in those folks who want to let nature take its course they're fine with the outcome of that because they have a different values system they don't value the people's ability to interact with their wildlife and feed their family and Um, if you're an outfitter, support your business and support the community and all those things. That is not high on their value list. High on their value list is, well, wolves should be allowed to do what wolves do. And if that requires all of the productivity out of an elk population to accomplish that, so be it people need to take a back seat that's not really a science conversation that's a value conversation yeah and and i understand that but that is not the prevailing value system in idaho we my agency by law right the people of this state passed an initiative the first initiative that created this agency and this commission, and it tells us that we manage wildlife for people. And we have a constitutional amendment in this state that protects the public's right to fish, hunt, and trap. And that constitutional amendment says hunting and fishing and trapping is the primary method in which we use to manage our wildlife population. Mm-hmm. Ed Schriever, the director, is not making this up. This is what the people of this state, the the initiative that created the Fish and Game Department in 1938 passed by 74% of the vote. The Constitutional Amendment to Protect Fishing and Hunting and Trapping passed by 74% of the vote. Mm -hmm. And I get that some people don't agree with that. But this is how civics and government and society works and we value the many uses of elk including that they are prey for lions bears and wolves but that needs to be appropriate in the degree of that so that we can continue to provide abundant supplies to the public for fishing, hunting, and trapping. And I'm sorry if you don't like that, but those are the values that we are managing to provide as told by law and the state constitution. You can think that's wrong all you want and you can you can turn the narrative however you want in the New York Times and get people to donate money to you, but that ain't the way it is. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm sorry if that just sounds cold and pragmatic, but that's the way it is.
0: Let's take a quick timeout so I can offer a couple of words from our sponsors. The first one being Eastman's Hunting Journals. Guys, they got the magazine. They got the Mule Deer Course, which is an online e course for you mule deer hunting enthusiasts like me out there. And they got Tag Hub. If you're looking to do the research you need to find the right tag to fit your budget and your time frame, check it all out at Eastmans.com. Next is Phelps Game Calls. Guys, Huntsman 10 will get you 10% off at Phelps Game Calls from Elk Calls. Predator calls, deer calls, turkey calls, all the calls you want this coming season. Spring turkey is just around the corner, so make sure you're checking them out. I like the black bat. And last but not least is Hoffman Boots, my boot of choice. One of the most underrated boots that nobody talks about for hunters. Go to HoffmanBoots.com and at checkout, use promo code HUNTSMAN10, all caps log for 10% off your new favorite pair of hunting boots. And folks, if you're loving the show, if you're loving the podcast, please go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write a good review for us. We really appreciate it. It goes a long way to help us with the show and our mission. The Western Huntsman, brought to you by Eastman's Hunting Journals. Check it out. Well, I think that that's, the, that's what's necessary anymore. That, that That is the kind of discussions that we need to be having and, and I think we it, it is we're at that point where it is time to start calling out some of this this stuff where it's just like this conjecture around wolves and and you know no matter what, wolves have to and like I was saying, the, the sometimes they have the ecologists that go to bat for them and I, and I don't know if I made that that point clear what I was talking about. I, I don't think that somebody's whether it's an educational or professional background, will ever overwhelm their proclivity to be an animal activist. I think that the animal activism is what comes priority. And so they get into like this group think or, or whatever, where they, they have, the, the, they want to protect these wolves in, in any case under any circumstance. And that's the only solution. And anybody that hunts, traps uh, a wolf is essentially, uh, you know, they demonize, demonize us. So, uh, do when you're looking at this uh, situation with Colorado, do you see any parallels to what happened back in the 90s with Idaho and would you if if you could if you could offer any advice to the residents of Colorado and the agency in Colorado, what would you tell them as they just kind of start stepping into this whole wolf thing?
1: Well, yeah, I I want to be careful as a sitting director not to be telling Colorado what to do, but I I I would have concern, right, because part of their their proposal includes 10-J. And so I would caution them that we started with what we thought were very good intentions on the part of the federal government and the state for the flexibility that would be offered under 10-J. With great intentions, that was taken away because folks took that to court and the judges saw it differently. So I would be careful about assuming that 10-J will provide you durable management flexibility through some period of time. Mm -hmm. It was very short-lived for us. And and we were upside down because we couldn't do anything. We were handcuffed so i would first caution them that nj can be a great agreement between the state and the federal government but there are you know there's also the judicial branch of government that gets to weigh in on these things and there's no guarantee that that's going to be durable um second it's you know Idaho gets vilified in in the wolf management world because we are trying to manage a population that is stable at some place lower than where it currently is and in order to do that you have pointed out Jim and you're correct so wolves are big game in Idaho mm-hmm. they are the big game species with the highest reproductive rate of anything we manage and when you're trying to manage stability mortality has to equal birth when you want the population to be a little bit smaller whether it's elk deer bears wolves squirrels you have to have a little more mortality than you do recruitment until you get to the level you want, and then you try to balance birth and death. Idaho has been very aggressive in our hunting and trapping framework and structure, only to hold even. Yeah, and and, and just like you said, there's all kind. Oh, it's it's a bloodlust. It's kill for the sake of killing when a population reproduces at 35% a year, you have to take 35% of them or they continue to grow at 30% a year. And pretty soon you've got this thing that is unmanageable on a landscape that needs it to be managed. And I just have my concerns that the Colorado public is going to be less supportive of the necessary management to maintain a population of wolves at a number. It's going to be very controversial. They are not Idaho. And I, I would be concerned that it's going to get away from them.
0: I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. I think the demographic in the state of Colorado is vastly different than Idaho. and uh, these just uh, the way that they involved the public in uh, you know, going to this vote to you know, hey, do we want wolves or do we not want wolves and and of course you're gonna have uh, you know the these folks that have no connection. To actual natural things in downtown Denver, you know these uh, flannel wearing hipsters, if you will. Um, of course, they're going to vote to have wolves because it it doesn't it doesn't the for them it's going to be something cool that they're going to watch on TV or Instagram. Uh, it, it's not it's not something that has a personal connection to them or or will have a, any kind of effect on them. And, and like to your point that you talked about the – how they're going to be able to react to that is going to be way different than what we what we have here in Idaho because those voices are going to get really loud. If, if if the wolves start getting out of hand, which they will in the state of Colorado, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the wolves are coming into uh, – what is that? Rocky Mountain Park or Estes Park or, uh, you know, all those areas where – people are used to seeing this wildlife i think that that dynamic is going to change completely and people are not going to react to how the the management agency there is going to want to remedy that so i think you nailed it um i think that's great advice actually hopefully hopefully they're uh, they're listening down in colorado well
1: it, you know the in, the other interesting thing colorado may be a little bit like oregon and a little bit like washington the majority of the population lives on one side of the state and Mm. that's true in Oregon, true in Washington. And and that's where the vote, right? It's the number of people who vote. So in Colorado, the people who supported the reintroduction live on the side of the state where the wolves aren't going to be reintroduced. Yeah. And the folks that live on the side of the state where the reintroduction is actually going to take place did not support it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're going to live with it. They're going to live with the will of the people who are disconnected from it, and it's it's that's just this political dynamic that's going to overlay the the state's ability to manage. And, and uh, I guarantee you, wolves in Colorado are going to have the same reproductive rate that wolves do in idaho montana and wyoming and every place they are and i i get that they're describing a population that they want to manage for that they think is going to be compatico to some degree well two things wolves aren't going to stay where you put them and you have to manage the population to keep it at a level and i just think once those folks who voted for recovery see what that management looks like. They're not going to like
0: it. Precisely. And yeah. you, made a, you made a really good point there that they voted for reintroduction. And, and essentially by doing so, the folks of Colorado that voted in favor of that also made that decision for Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, because those wolves are not going to stay there. So, so it's not just the Colorado elk population that's going to suffer, or you know, just the the folks in Colorado. Those wolves will be in Utah in no time. In fact, I think there's already some movement uh, from from Wyoming wolves into 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 Utah. But anyway, um, that's bothersome and that's that's pretty troublesome. Um, that might be a good way to segue into you you mentioned kind of the political aspect of it. Your, I, I, I was curious about getting your reaction on. Was that last year or the year before? I think it was last year. The legislative action that took place here in Idaho, where uh, the commission was kind of bypassed by the state legislators to bring uh, mechanical broadheads in lighted knocks. What, what's your reaction to that? And and what do you as as you know somebody who's been in wildlife management for as long as you have is that a problem? Is it not a problem? Like, give me, give me your kind of take on that.
1: Uh, Well, thanks for bringing that up, Jim, but uh, you know, (laughs) getting a little bit. Um, So again, let me, let me start and maybe I, I have this propensity to maybe give a longer answer to something that you would just want me to say, yeah, I don't like it, but um you go back to title 36 that created the fish and game department and it it was a citizen's initiative and, and it had overwhelming support when it was when it was written and it it describes things and it and it tells all of us that wildlife policy is set by the legislature and the commission's job is to implement that policy right
0: Mm -hmm. okay
1: but the next the next sentence the next paragraph says that the commission's job is to ascertain facts surrounding this there to manage um, basically for sustainability protect preserve perpetuate and manage that includes the balance between predators and prey and making sure that 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 it's available and then a policy the legislature set up and it's their prerogative to do that is um the fish and game department is going to be liable for damages to private property from big game that Policy is set by the legislature and the commission's job is to implement that policy. We don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. The legislature said, fishing game, you're going to pay for crop damages, big game causes. Now, right or wrong, that is policy. And that is the job of the legislature to set that up. And if you or you or you don't like that, you need to take that up with the legislature because that's their job. Sure, And you you can complain to me all day long that you don't think sportsmen should have to pay for elk eating somebody's hay, but I can't do anything about it because that policy is appropriately established by the legislature and our job is to implement that. But the law goes on to say that the actual management of deer, or elk, or fish. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. It should be, it's science-based. It's the department's job to gather that science. It's the department's job to give that to the commission, because the commission is supposed to ascertain facts around the issue. And they're supposed to listen to the public. They're supposed to weigh the What the public thinks about it, the societal, right, social science Mm -hmm. and the biological science. And that's why there's a commission and the commission has the sole responsibility and authority to set seasons and bag limits and determine where the opportunity is to have an open season and how many to harvest and when you need to close a season because... The, there's detrimental impacts, you know, you have a big fire or something. That That's the commission's job because it's impractical. This is what the law says. It's impractical for the legislature to have the necessary time to spend on these issues, to understand them fully enough to be able to implement the management. That's why there's a Fish and Game Commission. So the proclamation that is season setting and bag limits and uh, those things, the legislature put that authority with the commission. Now there's this thing that is in between the two and that's administrative rule. Administrative rule is more about what defines a muzzleloader, what defines a bow, right? And so the commission sets a archery season they can set an archery season but then the definition of what is archery that is in administrative rule and the legislature has a role in administrative rule the commission had this definition of archery and it did not include right you can't have a camera mounted to your boat and at that time it did not include The use of lighted knocks or expandable broadheads. And that, that goes through rulemaking process. The public is involved in it. And we have a rule that people abide by. And some folks support that rule. And some folks don't support that rule. And what, Jim, what we're seeing more is... That the folks, and and it may be 49% or it might be 5% of the folks don't like something that's in place. And their frustration with that, their sense of being disenfranchised because they don't have what they want. Those folks are going to the legislature to get the rule change. Yeah. So do I like, well, it, it's, it's kind of the way it works. Yeah. For that,
0: the, it, it was super for administrative rules. Now, what
1: we're seeing is people starting to go to the legislature because they don't like when the deer season closes. Hmm. They want they want a shorter deer season, or they want uh, they want a moratorium on doe hunting, or something that really is the commission's authority because that is, those pieces are science based and. And you really need to understand the biology of the animal and what it can and can't support and not just making these these unilateral policy decisions about how long the season should be or how many animals you should harvest. And I think if I was a sportsman, I would be concerned when the legislature crosses that boundary. but. And I would, I would hope that legislators, before they accept somebody's discontent, would understand, would, would take a little time to review all of the previous work that the commission has done in the establishment of that rule. Because I don't care what rule you have about anything you can always find somebody that doesn't like it.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah.
1: Right. Oh yeah. So so just because you don't like it, if you can get somebody's attention, uh, we, we work really hard with the legislature at that time to tell them, Hey, 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 that rule's in place because we did a rulemaking process on it four years ago. And here's the result of that. And it's, it's a similar thing. Let, let me just say the sawtooth tag, right? Mm-hmm. It's a ca- it's a capped zone. We capped the sawtooth zone because we were below objective and we needed to lower the hunting pressure in the sawtooth. So we capped the number of tags. Well, it's recovering quite nicely, and it's providing some very high quality elk hunting. And and even though it's not yet to the place where it's completely back in objective it's very popular and those limited number of tags are in very high demand. they're currently sold first come first serve but because it's recovered now folks are going well god it's hard to get that tag uh I, i don't like that i think it should be a controlled hunt where it's fair Everybody puts in for a chance, and if you draw, you draw, and if you don't, you don't. Some people don't want it to be a controlled hunt because that means you can only put in for it every other year. Some people want it to go back to a general hunt because they think the herd is recovered enough that it doesn't have to be capped anymore. It could be general hunt. So there's three legitimate alternatives. We asked the public, "Hey, which one do you want?" Guess what? a third of the people want one alternative, a third of the people want the second alternative and a third of the people want the third alternative. So no matter what alternative you implement, two thirds of the people don't like it.
0: I'm always fascinated. I'm always fascinated with how much more complicated this kind of stuff is than like my, uh, my simple view of it sometimes. And I think it's always good for people to listen to that because, you know, we always kind of get in this almost selfish mode about, uh, well, I want that tag because I think I took a drive through there, and I think there's there's a ton of elk, and and it should just be a general season or the next guy. Yeah, you know the the way you just described it, and the way you described the the difference between administrative rules and um, the one thing you were wrong on is is you thought that I thought you were or I you thought I wanted just a simple answer, but no, I I actually really wanted that that more complicated answer because guys like me. Need to hear that kind of stuff, I think it really helps a lot of people understand the process and the layers of complication and the and the different voices and perspectives you guys have coming at you and and it's just uh it's just a it's a bigger deal than I think people uh, think it is um in terms of complication
1: you know you go back to the example you started with the legislature ran a bill to allow lighted knocks and expandable broadheads. mm-hmm And in my opinion, they did that because a few people got their attention and said, the Fish and Game Commission is not listening to us. We've asked for this for 10 years. Yeah. We're the only state that doesn't allow lighted knocks. The Fish and Game Commission isn't doing their job. Therefore, we think you need to do it for them. And that can be fair, right? Mm-hmm. But actually, there's a, there's a whole bunch of archery hunters who don't agree with that, who, yeah. who, who did support traditional fixed broadheads and no-lighted knocks because they're concerned about the slippery slope of technology in primitive weapon hunting, ultimately meaning that these weapons are going to be more successful and the commission's going to have to reduce opportunity because there's only so many animals out there. So, you know, the a minority of people get the attention and say, we're not being heard. We're not being heard, and this is wrong, so we want you to fix it. And that's when I think appropriately those legislators come to us and understand the process that we've been through to get to where we are. Mm-hmm. And if they still think it's wrong, then it's their prerogative. Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, with yeah, I don't remember how much time I asked you for, but I know I'm running running over an hour here. But you got time for a few more questions? Sure. What? Uh, let's take the wolves out of it for a minute. Um, what would you say you're proudest of that you've achieved well, as director? Or I well, guess if it is the wolf issue, whatever.
1: Um happy we have been able to get to where we are with um with wolf management and we did we did release the population estimate for that was made in the summer of 2022 and it's down 13 percent it's the first time we've seen a downward turn in the wolf population since we started really measuring it and, and understanding what it is and so i think it's a step toward where we'd like to be it's a step why it's gradual 13 um reduction in the population it's not a 95 percent, right it's a very it's a glide path the plan says we would like to we would like to achieve our goal of fluctuating around 500 within six years that's a glide path. And so I, I I think that's good. One of the other things, Jim, that that the commission wanted me to do while I was director was to uh figure out how to add additional granularity to the distribution of non-resident hunters in general hunts. And we we accomplished that. It's, in place now since 2020 Mm -hmm. uh to do that we needed to pass a new rule we needed to get a license vendor that could handle this whole right every every unit that wasn't managed by a controlled hunt for deer now has a finite number of tags available for non-residents even though they're unlimited or residents, sure. Only so many regular tags, and there's only so many whitetail tags. And when those are gone, there are no more non-residents. And so, that's generally that's 10 or 15 percent. So when the commission implemented that, if the percent non-resident in that unit for deer or zone for elk, if it was above 15, they cranked it down to 15. If it was below 15, they they set it at 10. And that's that's made some really meaningful differences in some places. For example, Pioneer A Zone elk was 37% non-residents. And the commission implemented a 15% limit. So that's over a 50% reduction in non-residents. Uh, a tag owners in the Pioneer Zone, yeah, and you can go and see all of that where the distribution was evened out, and and that's been a good thing. Now, what we didn't know was going to happen is by implementing these unit by unit limits. It used to just be we had fifteen thousand deer tags, non-residents could buy them and go wherever they wanted to until the fifteen thousand was sold. Yep, that number's been that number's been constant for thirty years but we were starting to see them hotspotting a little bit, if you will. And so Christian wanted to even that out and we implemented that and it's, uh, it's been really meaningful in those places where there was a ton of non-residents. Now, what we didn't anticipate is when you, when you have these individual zone or unit limits, that it was gonna create this hysteria among non-residents who wanted to hunt in Idaho. Absolute hysteria.
0: You mean when- I gotta,
1: the, I, gotta get, I gotta get online and get that tag yeah. the first minute they go on sale. Mm-hmm. So, so we now have like 67,000 people online trying to buy these limited number of tags. And it's, it's a real challenge for our licensing vendor, to it, 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 the, the analogy in the fish and wildlife world this is like Ticketmaster and Taylor Swift concert. Yeah. The demand, <laughs> the demand is very, very high. And so we're trying to squeeze a fire truck through a garden hose. And, but it's not affecting residents. Yeah, things are going really, really smooth uh 364 days out of the year and when our residents are buying products so that's been a big deal it is i will tell you it's kind of brought an awareness to the resident hunting public and and unfortunately it's bought it's it's manifesting and we don't want any non-residents now and mm-hmm. that. We we had to work really hard in this implementation to make sure that the outfitting industry wasn't wasn't harmed and uh, that they can continue their base of operation and it, it's again Jim it's one of these issues where uh, folks may not like it and they're going what the heck and they're looking to their legislature to do something different yeah. so. I, I think if you just pull back for a minute and look at what the commission did, it's exactly what the majority of the resident hunters wanted them to do. And so, so I, I am happy that we were able to accomplish that and, and really kind of even that impact out across the landscape more evenly.
0: Yeah, I think it was meaningful. I you you'd said that you'd use the word meaningful, and I, I think it was as well. Uh, that's the kind of stuff. Those are the kind of things that make an impact when you're talking about like the the quality of a resident hunt. And you know, they grew up hunting one unit, and every year there's more and more non-residents going into that one particular unit. Um, you guys did something about it and, and I, I, I don't know. I think it was meaningful. Um, I know, I know that it's, it's an absolute circus. When did when do those tags go on sale? Uh, like December 1st. Yep. So we're around there. I, I know it's kind of a shit show on that end. Uh, you know, it's all over social media. Everybody wanting to come to Idaho and they the, the hysteria behind it. But, um, I, I imagine that there's gotta be some other way that that can happen in the future or whatever, but, what do you do? You have any as as you're kind of moving out of this role as director? Do you have any concerns that uh, whether they've you felt like were kind of left on the table, or or maybe things that uh, you see in the future that could become problematic for for Idaho sportsmen?
1: Um. Well, I, I don't. I don't want to be a fear monger. I think. I think we all since this um you know uh, a bear hunting ban or seeing what might be happening in other states that that where commissioners might be managing more um on an emotional basis rather than a science basis um so yeah i i am concerned but idaho is really really strong it's a constitutional amendment protecting the right to fish hunt and trap um for the most part the the legislature is very the legislature is very supportive of fishing and hunting and trapping i don't think you're going to see bear bait bans because if they understand that these elements while unpopular to some people are necessary in some places in order to achieve the management outcomes so i'm less concerned about that than i would be if i lived someplace else yeah but but you know uh it, it's always out there and we think about it um one thing jim that i i wanted to push over the, the finish line and I, and I didn't get it done in time we uh so the legislature, uh, Representative Carolyn Troy, uh, got a shooting range bill passed that provides uh, some flexibility and some guidance. And we created a shooting range committee statewide. We've got a half a million dollar a year shooting range grant program where we work with more of the local community scale, um, trap club or somebody else that, you know, they need a little help to keep the doors open or to replace some equipment uh shooting sports are important they provide significant input into the pittman robertson program we've got a we got a pretty nice range up at farragut we got a pretty nice range of black's creek Uh, but i i want to be able to utilize the flexibility in representative troy's shooting range bill which actually gives what's called continuous appropriation so that's one of those places if we have money, we can put it to use. We don't have to go ask for the legislature specifically for the ability to spend money on a shooting range. They've told us, here's a blank checkbook. If you've got money, you can spend it to build a shooting range. And hmm. and we're using the Citizens Advisory Committee to scope the development of uh, a bigger kind of a destination shooting range, if you will, that has, it's like a theme park. It's like an amusement park. It's got everything from sporting plays to to mile long range, to cowboy action, to just a place to go sight your gun in for for uh, hunting season. But it's got all of that oh, stuff. Oh, that's exciting. And those are, we're seeing more of those pop up across the country in response to the shooting Community, the sports shooting community needing a place to go otherwise they're out shooting up TV sets and couches on the desert and that, that's not doing good but um, so we've got it we've got a little bit of PR money uh, pushed into the corner we're, we're talking with uh, sister agencies at lands and parks and recreation about this conceptual destination shooting range and and we'd like to get that in a in a community in idaho that's currently underserved that that doesn't have access to something like that but it would be the first of i don't know how many eventually but uh i just i wasn't able to push that across the finish line in my term but it it remains a priority for the commission it remains a priority for our staff the shooting range advisory committee uh has it high on their radar so Stay tuned. It's it's coming down the line for those folks who are supportive of the department's operation of, or or at least participation with folks who run shooting ranges, giving people safe places to go have fun.
0: Yeah, uh, that's that's I I really like that idea because of the the two things you mentioned. The uh, the PR money that comes out of that uh, and, the, and the, you know, alliance we have with shooting sports, uh, you know, folks that want to go shoot but aren't necessarily hunters uh, yeah. are good friends to have. Um, and nothing drives me more crazy than driving down a Forest Service road and, uh, you, you know, they've got these cleared out areas where people shoot and it's just a mess. Um, it, it's, you know, that, that's kind of stuff that's going to put our public lands in jeopardy in terms of, you know, Forest Service getting tired of having to clean that up and, and shutting down roads and, and whatnot. So I love it. I love that idea. What's uh, What are you going to do now what, once once you're retired? What's, uh, what, what are your plans?
1: Well, I actually got another job. Uh, so, what you do? Yeah, I do. Um,
0: it's going to cut into your fishing time.
1: It's cutting into my fishing time. Um, so the governor has appointed me to represent idaho on the northwest power and conservation council um council member jim yost who is the second longest serving council member in the history of the council uh retired and uh so i'm gonna i'm gonna jump into uh the vacant spot on the council and uh most folks don't even know uh, what the council. It was created by Congress in 1980, the Northwest Power Act. And basically, uh, the the federal hydropower projects in the Columbia Basin, their power is marketed by the Bonneville Power Administration. And, it, and of course, it goes into a great big grid where energy is distributed and and. Other folks' energy is distributed on the same grid. Bonneville supplies the majority of electricity to small rural electric uh, cooperatives. And so there's that's important to Northern Lights and, and those folks up in your part of the country mm-hmm. to, to have a reliable, uh, affordable source of energy. And then the the power act also says there's a there's this obligation to mitigate for fish and wildlife impacts caused by these hydro systems so the council in in loose terms is to create a power plan that is forward looking and and understands the needs of the people and and works to keep that available and affordable but also pays attention to Fish and Wildlife, and so the, in, in the Council's program, there is a Fish and Wildlife Mitigation Program that's meant to balance the, the need and necessity for power with some of the impacts that it has on Fish and Wildlife. So,
0: hmm. interesting.
1: some of that's going to be very familiar to me I've, I've, on the Fish and Wildlife side. I've been very involved in those aspects with the Council, with our Council members with you know up in your part of the country there's a northern idaho wildlife mitigation program that that we settled with Bonneville that we're implementing southern idaho the same um the power side uh is is going to be a little more new to me and and so i'm looking forward to the learning curve i think it's a very interesting time in uh the electricity market and Mm -hmm this administration's push for wind and solar and how all of those things come together. So it, it'll be, uh, very interesting, very intriguing for me to serve on the council.
0: Well, I, I, uh, I, I could foresee some future episodes uh, off of that topic once you've been there. a while.
1: <laughs> well, you're always looking ahead, Jim.
0: <laughs> I, I've got to be, I've got to be. <laughs> okay. One, one last question. Uh, You've got you've got some some young folks that uh, maybe they're they're f- finishing up their ecology degree or and whatnot, and they're they're maybe going to be starting with the Idaho Fish and Game a new career uh, in the year twenty twenty three. Uh, what advice do you give somebody starting out in this career that you've you've been such a big part of for so long?
1: Well, you got to bring your passion, and and I'll say the same thing I've been saying to people who want to work. For Idaho fishing game, since I've been here, you need to understand what our mission is. You need to understand that we manage fish and wildlife for people. That that we and we manage all of the state's wildlife, including the things we don't hunt and fish for. Mm-hmm. But in those things that we manage, that people hunt and fish for we have a mandate to provide continuous supplies for that. And hunting is conservation. And um, if you think you're getting a job with the park service, you're not. You're getting a job with the state fish and wildlife management agency that delivers conservation through management. We are not lock it up, preserve it, don't touch it, don't play with it. Um, and so please, if you think you want to work here, understand that, and you will be as happy and fulfilled as I have been during your career.
0: Pretty good, pretty good advice. Really good advice. Well, director Schriever. Um, it's been a long career for you. Uh, I, I, you know, I appreciate everything that you've done. I, I really do believe that uh, you've made a positive difference in your time and your tenure as director, uh, as well as the years before you were director and, and, and your commitment to wildlife management and fish and game management uh, and, and an agency that uh, I feel, as somebody who's lived in more than just Idaho... Uh, I feel strongly that the Idaho fishing Game actually does listen to the people, even though sometimes it feels like uh, maybe because of one little thing we do feel like we don't have a voice, and it's just not true. Um, and so I, I just appreciate that. And um, a sincere congr- what would what you say for retirement? Congratulations, happy retirement! I, 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 it's it's funny. I never thought of my own retirement until the last couple of years, and it's it's like something in my near future, uh, well, not near future, uh, but close enough that I'm thinking about it. You, you know what I mean? Um, and so I just, uh, it, it's a, it's a fascinating thing and thank you for, for everything that you've done. And, and, uh, I, I think I'm just going to leave it with that. Uh, congratulations on a, on a great career.
1: Yeah. Thanks. You know, last night my retirement party, I closed, um, recently remarried and, and uh, helping to raise a 13-year-old and a 5-year-old boy. And, and my son is married now and has a 8-year-old son. So i got an 8-year-old grandson and, and my daughter is married and, and she's got a 4-year-old daughter and um, continuing to share my love of the outdoors and fishing and hunting with those kids and my kids, um, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm happy that I have been able to play a role in some way.
0: Yeah,
1: of, of keeping Idaho one of the best left places
0: in this country for that stuff. Absolutely, and I I, I firmly believe it is. Uh, that is not me advocating for new residents, by the way, but I firmly do. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I, I firmly do believe it is so, uh, and it seems, the, thanks to people like you.
1: The issue of growth is a real thing, Jim, and, yeah. and people are starting to recognize that we really have to wrap our heads around managing managing recreation and. All of that, because yesterday's non-residents are tomorrow's residents, and there's only so many square miles, right? And mm-hmm. so, we we do need to be thoughtful about what that looks like and, and manage it. It's it's hard to get a place to go to a state park
0: anymore from. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I, I gave up on that one. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. What, what was that? Don't give up. No.
1: Uh, Thanks, Jim. I appreciate the time.
0: No, I appreciate it. Stick on the line for just a minute. And uh, uh, again, thank you and congratulations on on retirement. Thanks. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at thewesternhuntsman.com and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.